good morning. Welcome to uh, the Aletha Campus of Christ Community Church. I invite you to take a seat. It's glad to, I'm glad to see so many people so energetic and mingling and having full-blown conversations with each other as we're getting started this morning. Hopefully you can get back to that at the end of the service. My name is Chris Fernhout. I have the privilege of being the student ministry pastor here at our Olathe campus, and I want to welcome you this morning. Um, if most of us were to take a few moments and look at our lives and we were to evaluate events and things in our lives, significant moments or dates, things that happened to us, we could probably come up with... Uh, you know, a sizable list of, of events or things that we've done or did that we could say define us as people and how other people view us. And for some of us, that wouldn't take that long to review our life because we don't have that many years. And for some of us, I'm not naming any names. I hear some laughing over there. For some of us, it would take a little bit longer. Um, I turned 40 this past year, so I feel like I've moved from one category to the next where it's starting to take a little longer. Some things I'd probably rather forget. But like you, I've got some things in my life as well that I would probably say are events or things that I did places I went, people I know, things that happened to me that I would say define my life, have put it on the trajectory that it's on, or that people could look at and say, well, that defines who Chris is. And and I'm sure most of us come up with lists of uh, of things like that. You know, maybe for some of you, it's like me, you know, it's a birthday or turning a new age and kind of, I realized last year I'm in the second half of, you know, turning 40, whatever that means, the second half. I don't know, maybe it's more than a half. Maybe for some of you, I'm, I'm saying for all the guys in the room that are married, you can say the pivotal moment in your life is when you met your future spouse, right? That's the moment you were thinking of. Nod your head, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe it was a birthday. Maybe it was, if you're a student, it was going from one grade to the next and you're making a big jump. Maybe it's a friend that you met, that grade that you got in the class that you're struggling with and you finally felt like you're starting to understand it. We can look at all kinds of things in our lives and say that those are the moments that define us and how people perceive us. And in many it's no different with Jesus and his ministry. There are many things that happened in Jesus' life and his ministry that not only defined him and his ministry, but defined how people perceived him. And it's interesting, though, Jesus doesn't take some of the things we might think that happened to him and use those as the markers in his life that define his life or how he is perceived. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, it was that one miracle or that awesome sermon I taught on that mountain that was really more like a hill or, you know, it wasn't that debate I won over the Pharisee and he looked silly and everyone started following. It wasn't any of those things. It wasn't even his resurrection. Jesus uses a meal to define who he was and how he would be perceived for centuries afterwards. And I know for some of us who love to eat and love, to love our food, that, that should come as good news. Jesus uses a meal to define who he is, his ministry, and how he would be perceived. But it's not just any meal. It's a meal that defined the nation of Israel for their history up until this point. It's the Passover meal. And I know that the Passover, which we as Christians are Christ followers, we now call communion, it's not any meal for you either, is it? And maybe for some of you, you walk in here and you see that we're set up for communion, you're like, oh boy, 
this again. You know, it, it is a bit mysterious, isn't it? We look at it, and, and it is a little weird. What, what does it all mean? Why do we eat bread and dip it in juice in the middle of the church service? You know, I remember as a kid, the church that I grew up in, we had pews and everyone sat in the row and then the elders would take the plates and it was real solemn and they passed them down the aisle. They're like these big, shiny gold plates with the bread in it. The kind where as a kid, I almost felt bad for touching the plate because my fingerprints are getting all over it and dirtying it. And then even worse, they sent big plates of, you know, thimbles full of juice down the aisles. And it was a really nerve-wracking experience, I think, for everyone in the church he goes, it got to a point, you know, or I knew I had arrived where my dad no longer took the plate and passed it over me to an adult. He passed it to me, and I was like, I'm getting there. But then at the same time, I realized, oh, man, my hands are sweaty. What if I drop the plate? Oh, no, I don't want to shake it. And you could hear, like, if you shook it, you could hear the glasses rattle. Because we had real glass glasses in ours, too, so they would make all kinds of noise. I was terrified I was going to make a fool of myself And pour the whole tray in my lap. So I'd always pray that there's someone sitting right next to me so I could just do like the pivot, turn, and get rid of it as quick as possible, right? We don't do that here. We try and make it a little easier. But it can still be a bit of a nerve-wracking experience, can it? You come up to the table, you come up to the server, and you're thought, who do I go in a group with? How big is too big of a group? Four's okay, but too small? Is it six? Eight's clearly too many. Uh, and then you're like, ooh, oh man, I, I dipped my bread in the juice and I left a floater. Ugh. You know, because there's nothing worse than soggy bread in the grape juice, right? And then you're standing waiting in line and you're like, did that dude just dip his finger in the juice? <laughs> I'm just going to go sit down, right? And then if you're a kid, maybe, you're like, it's an interesting experience, too, because you're like, oh, cool, I get to do this. They ran out of donut holes? I really want that big piece of bread, because that just might tie me over till the end of the service. And if you're a parent, too, it's a bit interesting. At what point is it okay for your child, your son or your daughter, to start taking communion with you? You know, if, it, it was while I was serving communion here one time, I had... A, I had a mom or a parent, I don't think she's here, so I can tell this story, walk up to serving communion, and her son reached for a piece of bread, and she slapped his hand. Like, no, you can't. And it, because, but it's one of those things, as parents, we can resonate with. When is your child ready to take communion? And even when you think they're ready, how do you explain what's going on? Is the bread really his body? Is it, is it, or is it just symbol? You know, it, it's a bit of a challenge, even for us as adults, to understand what's going on. And so sometimes we just fake it and go along with it. So this morning, what we're going to do, as we look at this jolting saying of Jesus, take this this bread, my body, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at what the meal was, what the meal does for us, and third, what the meal does to us. Before we do that, let's turn to this morning's scripture, though. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. If you'd like to turn there, Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. If you don't have a Bible, we've got the the verses on the screen for you to follow along with. So now as they were beginning to eat, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of our Lord. What the meal was. If we'd read the, the passage just before this, and I wish we had time for that, we would have seen that disciples in Jesus have come to Jerusalem to celebrate this historic event in Jerusalem. And as they're doing so, as they're coming into the city, the disciples say to Jesus, um, where will you have us prepare the Passover, Lord? And Jesus gives them some instructions. And so the disciples go and they prepare for the Passover. And it's in this midst of events that we find the disciples and Jesus are gathered in an upper room to celebrate the historical celebration that Israel, that Israel celebrated every year that marked the history of Israel becoming a nation and as the people of God. And they celebrated this Passover feast. So there's a very real sense that the Passover feast that, that, the, Israel, that the disciples and Jesus were gathering to celebrate was a, was a historic meal. It had history. 3,500 years ago, give or take a couple of years, Israel was a nation with nothing more than a promise. They were stuck in, stuck in Egypt as slaves, uh, being forced to build all, all, the, all the buildings and designs that the Egyptians would come up with that we, we would look at for centuries afterwards and say, you know, the Egyptians were architectural geniuses. It was all possible only because the Israelites were their slaves. And then Moses, who's the adopted son of a pharaoh, who gets exiled out of Egypt because he feels sympathy for an Israelite who's getting beaten by an Egyptian overseer, takes it into his own hand and kills the Egyptian overseer, realizes he's done something wrong, and he flees the country to avoid uh, Pharaoh's punishment. And Moses goes into hiding in the desert. Forty years later, he comes back to Egypt, not this time as the exiled adopted someone as a Pharaoh, but as God's mediator for the people of Israel to try and free the Israelites from Pharaoh's grasp. Moses somehow gets an audience with Pharaoh, probably because of their, the way they used to be related, and he says to Pharaoh, hey, let God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, ah, that's not going to work. we still got some work to do. And Moses says, okay, well, God says a, a plague's coming. And Pharaoh says, bring it. And the plague comes. And then the next day, Moses comes before Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. And the Pharaoh says, ah, that plague wasn't so bad. We'll, we'll take some more. And they keep going back and forth. Ten times, Moses comes before Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I don't think so. You're, you're, you're nice free labor. And the final one, the tenth plague, Moses says, okay, fine. Now you're really going to get it. We're gonna, God is going to send a plague that you will never overcome. But God, ever faithful to Israel and to the people who desire to be obedient to him, gives a way out. He says, if you sacrifice a lamb and you paint the doorpost with the blood of this lamb, on this night when this plague of the firstborn comes, your house will be passed over. That tenth plague was one where the angel of the Lord was going to come and kill the firstborn of every house that didn't have blood on the doorpost of their home. And so Israel, in desiring to be obedient 
to God and, and being faithful and, and wanting the promise that had been given to them so many years before, wanting that to come true, they paint their doorposts with the blood of a sacrificed lamb. And they share a meal together in anticipation of what might happen, the freedom that might come. And their houses are passed over. And that night in Egypt, all over the country, there's much wailing and grief because every house that didn't have the blood on the doorpost lost their firstborn son, Pharaoh included. And at that point, Pharaoh realized just what was going on and there's no way that he could win this battle. He, doesn't, he begs Israel to leave. And he says, don't just leave, take all our gold and silver as well. And it says Israel plum, plundered Egypt. And they were in such a hurry to go with their families and their few possessions and with all this treasure that they didn't even wait for the bread that they were baking for the journey. They didn't even wait for that bread to leaven. They didn't even wait for the yeast and the dough to rise. They took it and went. And that's why when we read in Matthew 26 verse 17 that before the Passover, the Israelites were observing the first day of unleavened bread. It was part of the ritual of celebrating the the Passover. It was part of their story. That first Passover was such a defining moment for Israel. Kind of like our Independence Day, but on steroids and with thousands of years of tradition. It was celebrated by Israelites every year, the same day, in the same way. And each year that it was, that it was celebrated, the family would come together, a family union, and the eldest person in that family would tell the Passover story So that no person in that house would ever forget the story of God's faithfulness and deliverance through that first Passover. So in a real sense, this meal was also a meal of celebration. It was a historic meal, but a meal of celebration as well. And so it's given that history, 1,500 years later, that the disciples find themselves preparing a meal, a Passover meal that they would have with Jesus. The disciples had left their families to follow Jesus and were still in the process of understanding what his life meant, how, what his life meant for them, trying to bring some, um, some semblance of understanding to all of it. And it's through that, though, that they engage in this Passover meal with him. But this time, rather than telling the traditional Passover story, Jesus tells the Passover story in a way to the disciples that makes it clear for them That everything he said that night, they were to understand his life, his ministry, and their lives going forward. They were to understand all of that through that meal that night with him and the way he told that story. It changed everything for them. What the meal does for us. So as the Passover meal began, the person leading the meal would take the bread and they would hold it up and say, This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. Jesus leading this meal takes the bread. The disciples are expecting him to say the certain thing that he had said that they had heard in their families telling the story all these years. They they expect him to point back to a historical moment. But he invites his disciples instead to understand the Passover, the Exodus, God's promises, God's faithfulness, his coming death, and their life through this one moment. Jesus says, take, eat. This is my body. He lifts the cup and says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
And in doing so and in telling the story this way to his disciples, Jesus is saying that the Passover, that deliverance, all of this waiting for the Messiah to come, everything, all of it, was to be understood through him. Jesus was telling the disciples and he was telling us that he was there not to just save them from Pharaoh, to save them from slavery, not to just save them from sin, but he was to save them from death and death itself. When we partake of this meal, it reminds us that we are saved and that we need saving. The disciples and the Israelites and we are not saved because we have the right religion. Because we can check the boxes on the list of the right beliefs. That's not how we're saved. We are saved because we have been like the doorposts of those houses in Egypt. We, like them, have been painted with the blood of the Lamb. But not by any Lamb. The disciples would have seen this meal and they would have said, Okay, we see the, we, we see, uh, the bread and we see the cup, um, but something's missing. Where's the main course? In traditional Passover, the main course was lamb's meat from the sacrifice. They would have seen the bread and they would have seen the cup, but not the lamb. And so when Jesus says these words, take and eat, here's the cup, drink it, this is my blood poured out for the covenant, the disciples would have seen that Jesus was the lamb, the final sacrifice. N.T. Wright says, This meal with all its new Passover associations was Jesus' primary means of enabling his followers not only to understand his death, but to let its freedom work in their lives and in the world. It drew to a head the kingdom actions, not least the feastings, and kingdom teaching of his whole public career. Jesus' death seen and known in light of this meal makes sense of it all. This is how the kingdom will come. Through this meal is how the kingdom will come. Through the sacrifice of a lamb and a hasty meal, a ragtag bunch of slaves become a nation that would transform the world. Through the sacrifice of the lamb who is Jesus, we, the church, we become redeemed and we're ushered into a new covenant. This meal ushers us into a new covenant. And this new covenant, we can read about it in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. In this this passage, Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and they will sin and I will remember their sin no more. This is how the kingdom would come. 
through the sacrifice of a lamb and a meal. A new covenant is instituted where our sins are forgiven and his law is written on our hearts and we become transformed from the inside out. What the meal does to us. In remembering Christ's death on a regular basis, we are inviting Christ to continue to do the work, his work in our lives, individually and corporately as a church. When we participate in this meal, this meal humbles us. When we participate in remembering Christ's death through the communion meal, we are humbled. When we come to the table and take Christ's body and his blood, we're acknowledging a need that we can't meet on our own. We're acknowledging that we are sinful and we need the salvation that Christ so graciously supplied through his death. This meal isn't about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And when we eat this meal and we reveal to Christ and those of us here around us today, when we reveal that we're sinful and that we're in need of salvation, we're also admitting that we're in no position to judge each other, to judge anybody else who is here this morning. Because we all need help. Because this meal is not about me, it's not about you, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. To eat this meal means we're acknowledging a need that we can't meet on our own. A need that, frankly, though, we try and meet all our lives, searching for things that we think can meet it that can't, that will only disappoint us. Eating this meal means that we have a hunger that only one person can fill, one person can meet. Eating this meal means that we are spiritually hungry for Jesus and for Jesus alone. Because this meal is not about you, and it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. This meal humbles us. This meal also sustains us. You know, this is not the first time that Jesus taught his disciples to eat him. And it's a bit weird when, when you think about it. It's become a very familiar phrase for us because we've heard it for years and years in church. Culturally, though, we've taken that phrase and we've turned it into an insult, haven't we? 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was first telling his disciples, though, to consume his body, to eat his flesh, because he was the bread of life, I'm sure it would have been a very shocking statement to the disciples. So much so that, although, that when they practiced it for the next couple hundred years, though, and they began to believe that in consuming the bread, which was his body, people actually believed that early Christians were cannibals. Early Christians in the second century were actually convicted and arrested for being cannibals. And part of that, though, is because the very real theological discussion the church was having around what actually happens to the, to the bread and to the wine as Christ's body and his blood when people take of it during communion. And over church history, there's been four theological views that have contributed to that. And I want to share a couple with them with, you know, of what happens when Jesus says, take my body, take my blood, eat and drink. 
There's one tradition predominantly held by the Catholic Church that's called transubstantiation. Big fancy word that means that the bread and the wine, when you eat them, they actually become the body, the flesh, and the blood of Jesus. Literally. Can I get an ew from anyone? It sounds a bit gross. Yeah. Martin Luther taught something called consubstantiation, though. He, which believes that the bread and the wine stay bread and wine, but by faith are the same thing as Jesus' actual body and blood. So we believe it, and it is so. John Calvin taught that Jesus' presence is in, in, the, in the bread and wine is real, but only in a spiritual sense, and didn't have a fancy name. And another prominent reformer named Zwingli taught that the bread and the wine are symbols that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. And he called this memorialism. And the debate has circulated for hundreds of years over which one it is and why and how. The statement of faith by the Evangelical Free Church, though, our church says, the Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances baptism, and the Lord's Supper, or communion, which visibly and tangibly expressed the gospel. Though they are not the means to salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. To nourish us, the bread and the wine or the juice, the cup, have to be more than just symbols. The elements, the bread and the cup, are a means by which we can experience and understand the grace that Jesus provided through his death and are now available to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. But we can talk all we want about the theology of what happens here, but we, regardless of what you think happens with the bread and the juice when we take them, we cannot forget that Jesus was telling us to take them and eat them. Jesus was asking us, through eating the bread and drinking the cup, to internalize him. To internalize and take in his life into us. His love and his grace, that by eating it and drinking it, we were to take his love and his grace and his life into us, so we would be transformed. Jesus also does another thing. He asks us to do it. It's freely offered, but the choice is up to us. He isn't forcing anybody or his disciples to do anything. When Jesus is leading the disciples through the meal, he breaks the bread, and then he gives it to them, but the choice of whether to eat was theirs. The word that Jesus uses here for the word take, the Greek word, involves the receiver taking the bread... And not just receiving it, though, but making it theirs and owning it. So, so kids, it's a little bit like a birthday present that, or a Christmas present that you receive. Anybody looking forward to Christmas? Raise your hand. Yeah, there's some adults with their hands raised, and there's probably a lot more adults that want to raise their hand. But, you know, it's a bit like the presents that we're given at Christmas. You know, you look under the tree, it has your name on the gift. You, Yay, I'm getting a present or two. But is that present actually yours if it just sits under the tree with your name on it the whole time? Is that present yours in February if you've just left it under the tree the whole time? 
if you've left your tree up till February, that's a whole other issue, right? But to take, to make the gift yours, you have to take the gift and do what with it? You have to unwrap it. And in unwrapping it, tearing the paper off and opening up the box, you've made it yours. And when Jesus says to his disciples to take the bread and eat it, that's what he's talking about here. Not just receiving it, but making it ours. And it's the same with communion. Jesus is offering his body and his blood to us for our sins. But it's not until we've freely taken it, till we've eaten it and received it into ourselves that it becomes ours. That and you have to take it. We're not going to give it to you this morning because I don't want your germs. I've got a cold, so I don't want to pass anything on, right? When Jesus... When you take Jesus' body and his blood, you're not only saved from sin, from spiritual starvation and death, you're also sustained. Jesus' body and blood are the sustenance that we need and that we crave, that are necessary for us to have the life he intended us to have. And it's only through those things that we can have that life. His body and his blood are more than spiritual five-hour energy uh, or, or, or like some overpriced energy drink like Red Bull. His body and his blood through this meal, when we take it in, can sustain us for a lifetime. This meal sustains us. But this, this meal also unifies us. You know, this past Wednesday night for our student ministry, we had a progressive dinner. I don't know if all of you know what a progressive dinner is, but now that I've done a couple of them, I kind of think it takes the two things that Americans love the most and combines them, eating and driving, right? You eat somewhere, you get in your car, you drive somewhere else, you get out, you eat some more, you walk a little more slowly to your car, you get in, you drive somewhere else, you eat some more, and the thing continues, you eat, you drive, you eat, you drive, you eat, you drive until you can't do one of them more. You can't do one of them anymore, and hopefully it's not eating that you can't do. Hopefully you can drive home. But we did it for the student ministry, and, and it, was, it was a lot of fun. And I ate way too much. You know, clearly I can't say no to lasagna is what happened, but it, it was awesome. But what was really fun is watching these kids come in and engage in fellowship and conversation together that wouldn't have been possible without the food. You know, if we had just put them in a room in a house, they probably would have sat and stared at each other, cracked some jokes, they would have talked, but it wouldn't have been as comfortable as when the meal was introduced. A shared meal is a powerful experience for groups of people, and not just for kids with free food. Maybe you're wondering this morning why we've changed the seating especially since maybe some of you couldn't find your seat this morning and had to make do somewhere else. I know who you are, right? We did it for a couple reasons, though. First reason, though, is we wanted this table, the communion table, to be the center of everything. We want it to be in the middle of the room, the focus of everything that we did, that we thought, that we said, that we sang this morning. 
We also did it, though, because it's very easily, very easy to come here on Sunday mornings and feel isolated from the people around you because you stare at the back of people's heads the whole time. By putting the table in the middle of the room and, and changing the way the chairs are, we have more of an opportunity to engage each other by seeing each other. Hopefully, you find comfort in that. But in doing so, we are hoping to bring some more unity to this meal because this is a meal that unifies us. This is a meal where we sit down together, together, with God, just as Jesus and his disciples did when they sat down for this meal. Jesus said that his blood was part of a covenant, a new covenant that was made between him and his people, not just his disciples. And a covenant is a kind of legal relationship. Two people engage in, and it's a commitment to one another. This meal is a sign and a remembrance and a recommitment to be in a covenant relationship with God and with each other. As we eat the bread, Christ's body, we become one body. But when we take communion, sorry, many of us, when we take communion, we love the fact that it's a visible and tangible reminder that regardless of how sinful we are, when we eat of Jesus' body and his blood, that no matter how sinful we are, he'll never turn his back on us, and we take great relief in that. But what we can forget, though, is that when we take communion together, we must also remember that we're making a commitment to each other in the same way. That as as the body of Christ, we're committed to each other, no matter how difficult. This... What we have here this morning is not intended to be a relationship of convenience. And in taking this meal together this morning, we're making a commitment to each other to keep coming together, to keep serving each other, to keep serving our city and our community together, to keep praying for each other, to keep encouraging each other, and to keep holding each other accountable in our life with Christ. This is a meal that unifies us. This is also a meal that gives us hope. We celebrate this meal on a regular basis, probably about once a month. And from time to time, it might look or feel a little bit different like this morning, but it's the same meal. We continue to celebrate in order to remember Christ's death and what he's done for us. But Jesus does not continue to celebrate this meal. Through his death, he drank the cup of suffering so that we can drink the cup of celebration in hopes of when he returns and inaugurates his kingdom in its fullness. For the Jews, the the Passover was a way of celebrating another year of God's faithfulness. For us, the communion meal is a way of looking forward. Not only remembering his death, but of celebrating and ushering in a new reality, a new life that we can have through him. When we take his body and his blood and we eat the bread and we drink of the cup, we are saying, that old me, that old us, it's gone. It's dead. It has no power and no control over me. I'm a new person. We are a new people. And in doing so, we are given hope. And through all those things, in in being humbled and in being sustained and being unified 
and be given hope. We think this meal is good. This, this meal is good. But it won't be nearly as good as what's to come. This, this meal is just a taste of what is to come to us. Because right now, Jesus is preparing a great banquet for us. One like we've never seen. Revelations 19 verse 9 says, We will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it will be a party like we've never seen before. This meal gives us great hope. So on a night 1,500 years after the first Passover, Jesus gathered in a small room with his disciples for a traditional meal. This meal would not just remember God's faithfulness and their deliverance, but as Jesus led it, it was intended to make his disciples humble, to help them submit to him. It would nourish them and unite them and give them hope. And this morning we can have those same things. And Jesus took the bread and breaking it, he gave it to them and said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he poured it, saying, this is my blood shed for you. 3,500 years before A lamb was slain in Egypt to save the life of the firstborn son in a house. And it led to the freedom of Israel from Egypt. This morning we commemorated a day 2,000 years ago where another lamb was slain. the The final sacrifice. A lamb that was the firstborn son of God, our father. And it was slain so that we and all mankind could have freedom from sin and death. This morning we have four stations at which you can celebrate this meal together. We have two up here and we have two in the back. And we'll have some time to celebrate this meal. Prepare your hearts. And when you're ready, come together. And come to be humbled. Come to be sustained. Come to be unified. And come to be given hope. Amen.